Hi, I'm Pedro Scanlon, Assistant Professor at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources and the Center for Diaspora and Transnational Studies at the University of Toronto. Um, if you're online, thank you for joining us and thanks very much to the Center for Ethics uh, for the invitation. Um, I'm curious today to think aloud about uh, some really interesting questions in, in political economy in the past and the present. Because um, one of the first responses um, across the world, but especially you know, in Canada, you know, in the United States and in Western Europe to the COVID crisis and the mass unemployment uh, that was a very rapid consequence of the COVID crisis has been the emergence of new schemes for, for wage replacement, for topping up workers' wages, um, for making sure that workers are, who are laid off uh, remain on the books, um, for making sure that workers who are furloughed remain paid. Um, and as an historian interested in the 18th and the 19th centuries, my first thought was of, truthfully, was of the, the Spenum land system, which uh, the British government introduced, uh, or a group of British gentry introduced in the late 1790s, uh, in response to the crisis of the French Revolution and falling harvests, to top up workers' wages uh, to a basic level of subsistence. Um, and almost as soon as the Spenum land system was introduced, uh, political economists uh, were, uh, were exercised with, with its various problems and pitfalls. Um, and so it's interesting to me that, that the COVID-19 crisis has reignited these kinds of questions about how to guarantee reliable work in a crisis, what kind of responsibilities workers have to employers, what kind of responsibilities employers have in turn to workers, um, questions about the distinction between work and labor, uh, what counts as work, what counts as labor, what's essential, what isn't essential. Um, also questions about work as a form of moral discipline. Should people be working in order to guarantee some kind of social harmony? And finally, and most interestingly, at least from my perspective, questions about the moral hazard that idleness presents. So if people aren't working or are paid effectively not to be working or not showing up at work, uh, does that present some kind of moral hazard within the system? Uh, is, it, is it harmful to society to pay workers not to work? Um, but because I've been existing in a haze of constantly refreshing uh, Ontario's COVID case counts to find out whether or not my kid can use uh, the swings at the park, uh, I've invited two experts on political economy in the past and the present to help uh, us get to the bottom of some of these questions. Um, so I'm very happy to welcome from all from the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto, uh, Associate Professor Dion Kohler, and from the History Department at Hollins University, Professor Christopher Florio. Um, so uh, I wanna start by asking you a question, Dion, because you're an expert on, among other things, universal basic income and other forms of bridging uh, income in, in crises. So I was wondering if you could explain um, a little bit about Canada's response to this crisis and the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit. Okay, well, thanks, Patrick, and thanks for having me on this uh, webinar. Um, uh, the, the Canadian response, um, I, I think, has to be put in the context of the kind of supports that we had available going into this crisis. So um, like a lot of liberal market democracies, Canada relied a lot on um, employment insurance, a, a program that is, is used as an automatic stabilizer when recessions hit or when workers lose their jobs to try and stabilize income and provide income support for workers who've lost their jobs. And um, that system is, it, there's also a very similar system, although it's structured slightly differently in the United States. Um, and that system um, is the major program that is used. And it was just wholly um, ill-equipped to deal with 
the, the current crisis. Um, the government um, shut down the economy in mid-March in both Canada and the United States. There was almost immediately a, a fairly widespread shutdown across both countries. And um, both countries, I think, immediately were, were intending to rely on employment insurance. And, and in Canada, um, the problem with that, and I think in the United States, they were experiencing similar things, um, is that in, you know, in the best of times, only about one third of workers, according to a, a, a Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives report, uh, only one third of unemployed workers in Canada are actually receiving employment insurance. Um, and so um, there are many workers who were ineligible for employment insurance. And um, for the ones that were eligible, many would have received very inadequate um, benefits to, to cover sort of the, the job loss or the income loss that they were experiencing. And so Canada introduced the Canada Emergency Response Benefit um, after initially actually just trying to address some of the problems in the employment insurance program and realizing very quickly that it, it was not going to be the best way to go. So they introduced through legislation a, a brand new program, um, a crisis program um, called for short the CERB. And, and what the CERB does is, is it, it provides workers with um, approximately, uh, well, exactly $2,000 a month for um, every month for four months, up to four months, they have to reapply every four weeks um, if they've lost their job or most of their income due to COVID. Um, and so this was, uh, I would say, um, a major improvement over the initial response to use employment insurance. Um, I think it was, um, it was a, um, a benefit that was much more um, targeted to, towards the issues uh, with the current crisis and it addressed much, many of the limitations um, through the that, that were the initial response to the employment insurance program, um, but the problem with um, the problem with uh, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, I think, is still that um, it, it is targeted towards those who've lost their jobs and, and most of their income, but it is um, still unavailable to those who've made less than five thousand dollars in in employment earnings within the last year. Um, it's ineligible to those who, have, speaking of your opening, it's ineligible to those who quit their jobs, um, which is interesting in a time when we want people to stay home and the idea of the CERB is to provide them the opportunity to replace the benefits that they lost from the government trying to force people to stay home um, and shut down businesses. And so there's a couple of major problems with it. Um, there are also some design um, problems with it, but all of that said, um, relative to the uh, employment insurance program, it was a massive improvement in, in policy response. Right. So, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, as I say, I've been, I've been glued to the news and one of the, one of the phrases that I've seen repeated again and again and again, along with cases surge and uh, what is it? Um, care, carefully easing out of lockdown, taking the first tentative steps. So I'd like to take the first tentative steps towards some kind of, to sort of historicize this problem. Um, Chris, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on, I mean, bearing in mind that the COVID crisis is at least in its scale, kind of un unprecedented, uh, what kinds of crises have provoked these kinds of responses in the past? And what, uh, you know, what, what sort of emergency bridging benefits can we think about in terms of a, a kind of historical analogy to the present? Well, I think I would begin by, to your point, Patrick, I think it's really important to underscore. I mean, the New York Times is just front page, and you see the visual of the scale of the unemployment in the United States currently. And so at this present moment, even 
compared to 2008 with the financial crash, or even the Great Depression comparatively, the numbers that we're seeing right now in terms of unemployment are quite astounding to happen so quickly and so immediately in the immediate context of COVID-19. But I say one obvious place to look to your point about Spienhundland is of course what happens in the 1830s in Great Britain. And so one of the most famous responses though here we don't see an immediate moment of crisis that in some ways precipitates this change in policy but is of course the Poor Law Amendment Act or the new Poor Law of 1834. And so there as you suggest since at least the 1790s one sees a growing sense of dissatisfaction among many British policymakers, many imperial policymakers, about the state of the poor laws and had traditionally governed local poor relief across England and Wales. And even in the 1830s, you start to see, particularly in southern and rural parts of England, increasing turmoil with the swing riots and so on and so forth. And one of the major responses to this ultimately in 1834 is this idea that the reason you are seeing these problems is in fact because the poor laws are actually being too generous. And so I think one point to connect the past to what's going on now, and this happened very quickly in the United States, even before the CARE Act was implemented, is this sense that if you're going to manage labor during a time of crisis in terms of any kind of relief, you have to make that relief as little as possible or else you're actually creating the problem you intend to solve. And so the principle that governed the Poor Law Amendment Act was known as less eligibility. This idea that if you are going to give relief, it should first and foremost not be given to people indiscriminately. It needs to be given above all in the context of a workhouse. And that level of relief has to be less than the lowest paying job outside of the workhouse. The idea is to make it so undesirable that the relief itself acts as its own deterrence. And so in some ways, one takeaway point, I think thinking back and historicizing is the way in which historically, there's a sense that poverty is a problem that in many ways provides its own solution. The idea that the whip of hunger and that poverty itself, if managed properly, can actually solve these problems of unemployment by compelling people to work in the way that policymakers want them to. Obviously in an American context, the most immediate corollary we have to our present moment is what happened in the aftermath of the Great Depression in the 1930s with the New Deal apparatus. And I think one point that's significant to underscore is oftentimes in hindsight, when people think about the New Deal, they often see it as this sort of massive and coherent administrative state. This is the way it's sort of stereotypically imagined in the minds of many conservative pundits to this day. But in fact, I think another co commonality to sort of historicize what's going on now and what's going on in the past is one historian, Alan Brinkley, referred to the New Deal. It's really a chaos of experimentation. This idea that during right. the New Deal, there is this great variety of social programs and there is no real internal logic to them. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who's the president of the United States at this time, is really quite cognizant that what he's trying to do is try something. And then if that doesn't work, try something else. So in that sense, I would say the chaos that one is seeing in the United States at the moment with res policy responses to massive unemployment, that itself is not surprising. What the big difference, of course, is so the chaos is consistent. The experimentation is in some ways what's missing at this present moment in the United States. That is to say, under the CARES Act, which was the $2 trillion relief package that so far is basically the main response in the United States to COVID-19, what you saw more or less, at least in terms of individuals, was this idea of we're gonna give up to a certain income amount, a one-time 
$1,200 payment or $2,400 for families. And then that's that. Versus with the New Deal, one of the things you saw is actually not so much in terms of direct cash and wage subsidies, but you saw programs for infrastructure construction, public jobs programs, this idea of providing funding for the arts. And so there's all these different programs as opposed to what one sees in the United States, sort of the constriction of policy possibilities. Whereas in the Great Depression, as I said, you have chaos, but you have multiplicity of policy options. Here, it's very constrained and it's been constrained almost from its very outset. So just to, to, to open up on, on that point a little bit, um, Dion, do you see a similar kind of proliferation of experiments in social policy in Canada with the COVID-19 um, with the COVID-19 crisis or has the Trudeau government's policy been fairly consistent and fairly focused on you know the distribution of grant money or, or bridging bridging loans or wage subsidies? Yeah, so I, you know, Chris's point uh, made me think about some things in terms of how I've been conceptualizing out what the government is doing in different ways. So that was interesting um, in terms of this idea of experimentation. And so I think in the context of Canada, one of the things that I would sort of think about is that the the, the federalism that we have the, the 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 provinces and the and the federal government and the interaction has generally been the way that um, a lot of policy experimentation has been encouraged in the past. Like for instance, universal healthcare came out of sort of community-led kinds of initiatives in the province of Saskatchewan, and then it was scaled up. And I think a lot of the best policy experimentation that occurs in Canada actually happens that way. Um, I'm not a historian, so I'm not, I, I don't want to sort of make that statement. I think that's my opinion. Um, I think what we've seen actually um, in the federal government's response, there's a lot of different programs. And so I think on the surface, um, we might say there's a lot of experimentation, a lot of trying of different things. Um, and there is some differences across what different provinces are doing. But I would also say that I feel like the government has kind of fallen back on just sort of expanded versions of things that we've always done or things that we, you know, sort of um, sort of seem like it's, you know, even the Canadian emergency response benefit, I mean, it fixes the problems with the eye, but it's essentially just an expanded employment insurance program, right? It's not really thinking outside the box in terms of redesigning social policy. And I think everything you see, like in the, in the policy debate on Twitter among academics and policymakers and pundits is really about, let's freeze the economy in the current form so that then we can get back to business as usual, as opposed to really thinking about this moment as really experimenting with social policy and changes to social policy. And I think it's because many, many people are actually worried that things like the, the CERB will stick around for some of the reasons that I think um, Chris nicely outlines and that you outlined in your intro, which is that, you know, I think governments and pundits and academics um, are, are very concerned about work disincentives. You start to see, you've already seen the, the op-eds coming out about how the CERB is, is discouraging work and it's going to disincentivize people to, to, from working when the economy starts getting better. And you see the term welfare slackers showing up in op-eds. Um, and even among you know, sort of really um, uh, sort of thoughtful, um, you know, academics um, who, who really care about, you know, good public policy and thinking about new ideas. We still, I think, get stuck in the idea of, of work as disutility, which is very much embedded in neoclassical labor supply frameworks. 
Um, and I don't want to sort of caricature neoclassical labor supply for or the, the, the labor supply model too much because there's a lot of nuance in it. It doesn't assume that work is all bad or that, you know, we hate everything about work, but it does assume that on the margin, you know, there's a marginal disutility um, that, that factors into people's decisions about working, right? People actually are choosing between um, max, you know, um, uh, consumption and leisure rather than sort of getting some real inherent utility from working. And I think that that is embedded into all of the designs of policies and even now starting to be around the um, discussion around how we move out of this and the kinds of problems we're going to face from the crisis income support policies. And so as a result, I don't see a lot of like really big experimentation as a result. So this is this is a broad question that I'd like to pose to both of you because I, I find that very I, I find that kind of interesting and, and, and dispiriting, right? To to think about the distinction between the kind of policy experimentation that was possible in the wake of the Second World War, in the wake of the Great Depression in Canada and the United States, and the kinds of responses that are being proposed now. So this question might be beyond the remit of both. Uh, industrial relations and history, but what what kind what's constraining our political imagination when it comes to responses to this to this crisis? Uh, maybe Chris, if you want to if you want to start answering that enormous question. <laughs> one point that Dion's comments just got me thinking about is the way in which I think one thing that's so striking about the Great Depression, at least in the United States, as compared to the two most recent major, you know, obviously 2020 and COVID-19, and then in 2008, is in some ways, the most creative solutions in the context of the 1930s happened precisely in the 1930s. I would say it's in some ways a tautology, but when you start to see the beginnings of the Great Depression in 1929 in the United States, it's not as though in 1929, all of a sudden, instant experimentation begins. What really happens between 1929 and March of 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt finally comes into office, is every pre-existing idea in American, sort of American policy to, toolbox is tried and it fails. So the idea of we'll do voluntarism, well, that, that obviously isn't adequate to the task. Well, we'll do nothing and you know, change is right around the corner. That doesn't work. Obviously, Herbert Hoover begins with some in policy innovations, but very few. So in some ways, I think conceptually, we often think about moments of crisis as moments of political and policy creativity. I think oftentimes, at least historically in the United States, they're not. That is to say, we think about in the immediate aftermath of a crisis, what you reach for, and it makes sense, is you reach for the ideas that you already have in the back of your head. You know, talking to two people in Canada, so I'm gonna make a bad joke, but it's like, if you're driving on ice, the, the reason there's so many accidents is you slam on the brakes. That's your first instinct is to sort of go to the tried and true idea. If you're losing control of the car, hit the brakes. It's only in an American policy context after all of these pre-existing solutions are found wanting and inadequate to the task that new ideas become politically viable and politically conceivable. So I would say at least on that point, I think one of the reasons you even saw the $1,200 stimulus to begin with is because in recent months, whatever you think about him, Andrew Yang certainly got the idea of basic income, at least in some sense, in the political imagination in the United States. So even that is not a new idea. That's a recently, that, that's an idea that's already out in the mainstream that then becomes newly political viable in the context of crisis. But it's certainly not a moment of creativity. And I would suggest historically, oftentimes, I mean, even going back to 1834, the Poor Law Amendment Act, 
People have been talking about amending or even abolishing the poor laws in England since the 18th century. So like 1834, it was a new idea. In some ways, what happens during crisis, at least immediately, isn't new ideas, just old ideas, newly legitimate and viable. I mean, I, I think we're certainly seeing that with the, um, not, not just the necessity of pushing a lot of activities to online fora, but also a kind of maybe genuine enthusiasm, maybe ginned up enthusiasm for the idea that in fact, like conducting a lot of our public and intellectual and educational life in an online space is a, you know, a positive benefit. Um, but I wanted to spin off of that actually and talk a little bit about universal basic income because uh, Dion, along with a few of our colleagues at, at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources published uh, a paper about misconceptions about universal basic income and advocated for a targeted UBI as a response to the COVID-19 crisis. And I was wondering, Dion, if you could tell us a little bit about those ideas and whether or not the kind of acceleration of the crisis since that paper was first published has changed them at all. Yeah, so um, just that's a great question and it builds off of something that I wanted to touch on and what Chris said um, around um, this idea that, you know, old ideas are kind of getting a lot more traction nowadays. So it's not even necessarily completely new kind of experiment or idea. Um, the, the, the idea of a basic income has been around in Canada since at least the 70s when the Sen uh, Senate committee actually came up with a recommendation um, to introduce um, a basic income to address poverty. Um, and, and back in the 60s and 70s in the United States and Canada, we had several policy experiments, a, a famous one in Dauphin, Manitoba, that's been, some of the data has been rediscovered and is being reanalyzed by academics, which has brought back a lot, some excitement on around basic income in Canada and the academic community, um, but also uh, more recent experiments in Ontario, the pilot that was canceled around basic income. Um, and, uh, and in the United States as well. I mean, these, these are not new ideas. Martin Luther King was a big uh, supporter of a basic income. Milton Friedman, so you can see sort of the, um, the sort of uh, buy-in to this idea across the political spectrum. And for a variety of reasons, there are sort of different reasons um, for why you see support across the political spectrum. But um, I think one of the interesting things about um, revisiting this idea, um, is, is the question of, you know, I think people are sort of looking around saying, you know, we're in this, um, this kind of uh, situation in liberal market democracies in particular, where we really have had a very kind of, um, you know, I don't like to use these words because I don't really necessarily even know what they mean in some sense, like the neoliberal kind of agenda. But in some ways, what it, there is this individualization of of a lot of things, right? And including the, the worker and sort of the way we deliver income supports. Um, and I think that, I think, and, and, and supports for people to meet their basic needs. Um, and so I think there is, you know, it's one of these ideas that maybe can fit with that kind of a, uh, that kind of a notion. Um, but it's interesting that I am sort of a, a big supporter of that idea because I'm actually, I don't sort of philosophically um, or from a theories of justice perspective, see myself as a, as a small L classic liberal. In some senses, I see myself as much more of a communitarian um, in, in the form of sort of my uh, philosophies. And, and I really, the reason I kind of like this idea of a basic income um, is because I think one of the things it does do is it allows some of the, a bit more maybe back to decentralization of some of the solutions that become possible when you 
um, you know, give people within their communities, within their spaces, the ability to kind of step back from having to sort of, you know, deal with um, trying to find jobs and trying to put food on the table, especially in labor markets where there maybe aren't a lot of jobs. I come from rural part of the country where, you know, it's not like there's a robust um, labor demand in some of these places. And so I sort of see this as part of a, of a, of a way of providing so a bit more freedom in the sense of, of allowing individuals and communities and families to kind of make different decisions around how they want to organize their economic and social life. And so that comes to the question about the difference between a universal and a targeted basic income. Um, and I think the question um, really there comes down to one of um, efficiency in, in redistribution to address poverty. So for me, I, I just think that, you know, um, there can be a lot more efficiency if you target um, uh, money to those in the lowest part of the earnings distribution who, who, who are more likely to need it. Um, but I also think there's a there's an equity or a voice conception of it too. It's, it's really the lowest income workers who, uh, as Chris pointed out, uh, are disciplined by the whip of hunger. And so they're the ones that have the least freedom to be able to make these kinds of choices. Um, and, and, and many of them, you know, live right now in in sort of communities where they probably would like to do something else that they feel is 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 productive and valuable to um, that to their communities um, rather than sort of you know kind of constantly try and um, um, you know try and find jobs that end up not with not any sick benefits in the you know when they have to stay home and take care of family members and those kinds of things and so I think it gives it shifts the power dynamic within the labor market. Um, and to me, I've, I, I sort of see that the, the power dynamic is um, imbalanced on the bottom more so than in the higher parts of the earning distribution. So I have a couple of different reasons for supporting a targeted version over a universal version. Um, but I do still think my bigger sort of project in, in sort of advocating for a basic income in general is because I want to see more of that experimentation be able to happen um, within communities, with, with people being able to have the freedom to come together to make different kinds of decisions about the organization of their social and economic lives. And it, it's definitely, I think, one of the things, in at, at least in, in, in Canada, that the COVID-19 crisis has really highlighted is, I mean, I, I think it's forced us to think very hard as a society about what kind of work we consider to be essential. Uh, and I think personally, I mean, I'm not you know, it, 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 it's reminiscent to me, I mean, maybe because I'm sort of terminally stuck in the decades between 1790 and 1850, but it's, it's reminiscent to me of labor crises in the past when, in a sense, agricultural workers are essential for the operation of industrializing societies in the first decades of the 19th century, but they're also among the most sort of horrifically oppressed, underpaid, and coerced portions of, of the labor force uh, I mean, it's it's. I would hesitate even to call agricultural labor, at least in Britain, a labor market, right? It's it's not. It doesn't follow any of the kinds of rules that a labor market is supposed to follow. But I think one of the things that the COVID nineteen crisis has shown is that, in fact, our labor market doesn't really follow many of the rules that labor markets are supposed to follow. Um, and it turns out that people whose work is absolutely crucial to maintaining the basic social and health infrastructure of the society are among the lowest paid and most neglected parts of the workforce. Um, and that, that's provoked all kinds of 
interventions, which I think we've we've explored a little bit, but it's also provoked if you're if you're like me and you're glued to the uh, various press conferences at the federal, provincial, and municipal level every day, uh, you'll know that that you know communicating policy has become uh, a much more urgent necessity for a lot of politicians around the world. And you know, press scrums that might have happened every couple of days now happen multiple times a day. And so I wanted to pivot for a moment, Chris, to write a, to, to ask you a little bit about uh, an, an op-ed that you wrote um, about uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, and his response, uh, at least earlier in the crisis, um, and, and, and the way that he communicated ideas about managing the crisis in New York. And you, you, used, the lang you used a phrase called the language of interdependence. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that means and what kind of political traditions Cuomo is invoking in, in using that language. So to start talking about interdependence, I actually want to pivot back to something you just brought up a moment ago, this idea about agricultural labor and what actually counts as an essential workforce. I think one of the points that almost all labor historians would acknowledge, but that's often lost in the general public mindset, is when we think about what counts as work and who is doing the working, this is the kind of broad sweeping generalization that historians don't like to make, but historically across human history, the vast majority of people who work are poor. And the vast majority of people who are poor are those who work. And they work in all kinds of different ways to your point about invisible labor, obviously the sort of labor that the domestic labor that's going on in the household right now, obviously is becoming at least in some ways newly visible, although it's always been all important. It's just been all too invisible. I think one of these points that the crisis is bringing up, and this gets to this point about interdependence, is the way in which we often think about the poor as existing a world apart. There's often this disjunction, this juncture between people who work and people who are poor. These are seen as, as opposite. And this, in some ways, is a result of poor relief policy in general, this idea that we're going to separate the category of poverty from the category of labor or work. But in fact, what this moment is illustrating yet again is the way in which we think about you know poor people as dependents and they're dependent on charity and social welfare and handouts but in fact society conceptually and in just literal terms of who's stocking the grocery stores at the moment has always been and continues to be at this very moment dependent on those very categories of people who had disparaged themselves as dependent so it's the poor in some ways that are the foundation of the labor economy in our present moment of crisis. I think it brings me a little bit to at least initially what Governor Cuomo was talking about in his press conferences, which was this idea of interdependence, which again, itself has a history. Now in the United States, currently one major response you see is this idea, we, you know, we need our freedom. We can't, we're not going to wear masks and we're going to just do it ourselves as individual Americans and we don't need the government to do anything with regard to COVID-19. But in fact, what Governor Cuomo was doing and talking about interdependence was talking about this idea that it's not about me, it's about we, which is a really terrible rhyme, but you know, he, he's eh, as a speaker to begin with. So, but he tried. And I think what's important is to think about the way in which he was trying to imagine an idea of a society in which each piece is in its own way dependent on all of the other pieces. And as I said, this idea has a history dating back the most famous president in using this language of interdependence was Franklin Roosevelt during the New Deal, where he was very, very emphatically talking about, you can 
only respond to the New Deal with this, these different policies and these different experimental forms of responses to economic unrest by understanding the way each piece of American society is dependent on other pieces. So the idea that aid to artists is going to benefit the people who go and visit their art studios or aid to drought ridden farmers in the Dust Bowl is going to help Americans and wage earners in New York City who need the food that's being traditionally produced in the American Midwest and Southwest. And so there's an idea in which interdependence helps to illustrate this idea of the way in which we're all in some ways interdependent to Jung's point about communitarianism. In some ways it's a communitarian argument as opposed to the, the prevailing and dominant discourse and for a long time, and at least since the 1980s in, in US political discussions, which is it's all about individualism, it's about the self, it's about choice, and there's no wider obligation beyond that. So that was really what Governor Cuomo was talking about, and at least insofar as he was doing that for a while, I thought he was doing it successfully. And I, I want to um, sort of open the question up, and I'd like to get back to you in a moment, Chris, to, to move up from the state to the, uh, to the federal level of uh, crisis communications in the United States. But first, I, I just want to ask Dion, so I think it's clear that there's been a very, I mean, there's, there's nothing that Canada likes quite as much as comparing itself to the United States. And I feel like in many ways, one of the few bonds that's holding Canadian solidarity together insofar as it is holding together in the course of the COVID-19 crisis is incessant comparisons to the United States of America. And so I wonder what you make so far of the political communication, at least maybe maybe at the federal level in Canada or at the provincial level, you know, what, what kind of messaging, what do you make of, of Canadian messaging at this point in time? Well, so just on the point about Canadians always need, I, I really do think sometimes I wonder if Canadians actually understand ourselves or have an identity separate from the comparison to the United States. Um, but I do, I, I mean, I don't think politicians have, have used any sort of framing relative to the United States in any of the communications I've been listening to. One of the things that I do um, think is really interesting in that occurred in Canada um, is that just prior to the crisis, you know, I mean, I mean, for the last couple of years, really, there's been sort of this increasing um, sort of rhetoric around things like equalization payments. So, you know, kind of the way that we redistribute money across different regions in the country to kind of equalize um, um, sort of the, uh, the improve the fiscal capacity of poor provinces, have not provinces. Um, and there's been a lot of sort of pushback, especially out West, right? We sort of have post, um, federal election, there was sort of the idea of um, Western alienation sort of really coming back into the fore. To some extent, that's always been there. I grew up in the West and, and to some extent, it's always uh, been there. And it's sort of the last couple of years, it seemed to be kind of coming back into the forefront of much of the policy discussion. But one of the things that really struck me was just how quickly all of the politicians across the various stripes kind of immediately came together um, and sort of were like, what needs to be done to sort of support our fellow um, Canadians in other provinces, for instance. I know, for instance, Alberta, which was really uh, through, you know, Jason Kenney, the, the premier, was at the forefront of the discussion about sort of equalization and how unfair it was, you know, was was really sort of a, in, the, in his communication sort of talking about sending excess 
personal protective equipment and ventilators to Ontario and Quebec. Um, I, I'm probably messing up the details, but that's really some of the what came out. And even um, there were some, you know, there's some minor things that always come up in terms of partisan kind of bickering and, um, you know, that kind of thing. But really, there was a lot of support by the opposition parties to sort of help move policy forward and pr provide good ideas and push back when I think they should have. Um, again, sort of overreach by um, right now a minority liberal government. But but I think that it was really, I, I felt like there was a really coming together of the, of, of, the, of the political side in a way that I wasn't sure would happen because we hear so much more about polarization um, and, and, you know, on social media, a lot of my feed is dominated by American media. I was kind of, I was very pleasantly surprised by that. I think now, to be honest, though, I think we are starting to see a bit more of the fracturing happening in Canada again, differences in opinions about how governments are opening up and sort of some of the, the tone around that. And so I think we have to be kind of careful as we move forward to how do we kind of address all of the concerns about, uh, from, a, from both the economic and the health side um, and, and still continue to move forward together in a way that doesn't sort of destroy that, that solidarity that I think it was nice to see we still had. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 comes to one of the problems that, at least from my perspective, seems. I mean, I'm glad I'm not in a position to make policy decisions because the problem seems basically intractable. On the one hand, it's pretty clear that closing the economy indefinitely is impossible and will impoverish and immiserate and you know countless millions of people around the world. But at the same time, opening the economy leads to a kind of inevitable, will, will lead to an inevitable increase in cases and therefore an inevitable increase in death. And so politicians around the world have placed themselves in a situation where they are weighing the costs, the unforeseen and unforeseeable costs of extended confinement against the foreseeable costs of a, a higher death toll and a higher case rate from COVID-19. And I think nowhere, uh, you know, outside of maybe Brazil, I think the United States has probably animated that, that di distinction between the economy or maybe false distinction between the economy and the infection rate quite as much as, as the United States. So I was wondering, Chris, if, if you could just give us a little bit of historical perspective on what kinds of fractures and rifts in American history have come to the fore in the kind of nightly media circus when President Trump addresses the media? What kind of rifts in American society are, are, are opening even wider in the course of this crisis? Mm -hmm. So I think the distinction you emphasize is the one that's all over the American media, right? sort of between economic life and safety in some ways. And the idea that, well, you need to open up the economy. You can't let the cure be worse than the disease. These are sort of the prevailing tropes you hear again and again in the media and certainly coming from Trump's press conferences. So I think in some ways to historicize that, to go back to really the era of early industrialization and what Americans have a really hard time talking about is in some ways with, with what's happened in the lockdown when vast majority of Americans are now, if they're working at all, working within the home and then with the idea of sort of sending grants to individuals, at least some individuals, 
increasing unemployment benefits, at least until July. There's, you know, wealth is being sort of concentrated back within the home again. So in a weird way, you have sort of this wrinkle in time to back to pre-industrial economics in the sense that what you had, at least in the United States, in many places before the middle of the 19th century, is the households was the dominant site of both the production of wealth and the alleviation of poverty, such as it was. And so what Americans are really struggling with now is because since that period of time, one of the innovations of the industrial order was there was a separation spatially as well as conceptually between the site of wealth production and the site of poor relief or even the, the institution responsible with poor relief. So no one would say now, at least first and foremost, that the, that the home is where poor relief happens or that the home is where work happens. And so what you see is Americans are having a really hard time talking about how do you open up an economy where the economy has all of a sudden been relocated. Everything's back within the household again. And so you start to see these talk about, you know, well, we need to reopen the economy. What does that actually mean? Americans aren't talking about the economy per se. They're talking about particular forms of the economy. They're talking, so opening up the economy means make the stock market go up again. This is one key component. It's the idea that the economy equals financial growth as measured by the S&P 500 and what that happens on a daily basis. That's certainly President Trump's conception of opening the economy. Then along with that, what you have, again, this idea of getting people outside of the household. People don't, you know, people don't like giving themselves coronavirus haircuts and things like that. All of this labor all of a sudden being located within the home. What a lot of the protesters are talking about, this idea of getting outside the home, is an idea of sort of being able, not they don't want to go back to work, maybe necessarily. What they want is to be able to go out and exploit and benefit from the work of others. Obviously, thinking back historically, people who are generally poor, oppressed, racialized, the essential workers. People, people want to go get a haircut. They want to be able to just go and exploit for very low wages the people that they were exploiting back before this. So in some ways, opening up the economy doesn't at least in an American context, really mean anything more than opening up particular aspects of the economy, I think, that have been constrained in recent weeks, in recent months, a certain particular subset of Americans. Can I just follow up on just that, just in, because I think it's so critical to this point about uh, what you brought up earlier, Pedrick, about this idea of, you know, what does, you know, what does work mean? And in the context of things like the, the income support policies and what kind of policies we might have going forward, it is one of the reasons why um, I don't know why we can't have the conversation about giving those low income workers the option, right? Because to me, it comes down to power. It's about shifting the power dynamic to allow them to say no. <laughs> like, I don't want to cut your hair and possibly get COVID. And I know you're upset that the CERB right now is, you know, more enticing to me to stay home than going out and exposing my entire family to it when you can sit at, on Zoom and have your meetings, um, you know, in the context of your higher income job. But th that's for me what a big part of that kind of policy does is it shifts that power dynamic. And I think that that's fundamentally scarier to, you know, I don't know who is even part, I mean, we're probably part of the elite class, but I think that's fundamentally scarier to me than, you know, and, and that's why I want to push myself towards that. Um, because what does that mean, right? If we give large components of the population who right now are disciplined by low wage work, what happens if we give them the option? 
you know, what would they do with it? <laughs> Maybe they'll come up with the creative policy ideas and the solutions to um, the kinds of lack of access to goods and services that exist in rural communities, um, better than the government could even imagine to do. And so I think that, you know, that's just to build on, I, I love the way Chris put that and I just wanted to put uh, the policy side of it in clear focus in the context of that point. Yeah, I, I think that that circles back around to the, the the initial. I mean, one of the one of the joys, at least, of being a humanist, uh, albeit a humanist amongst social scientists, is that you don't have to make predictions really about the future. But it does circle. But and all, all you can do is just sort of point out resonances with the past. But you can see a similar. You know, we, we, it feels like that moment that 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 Chris mentioned and that I I spoke about earlier uh, in our conversation, that kind of 1830s moment of, of mounting tension in the early era of industrialization, it feels like, not unlike the moment now, right? There's, there's this push and pull between the necessity on the, uh, as, as, as you say, Dion, the, the necessity among the, I guess, the, the elite tranche of the economy to keep the economy functioning as it was, but there's something coming that seems to bedevil efforts to return to that kind of another phrase that 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 I've grown that that I've grown incredibly sick of the new normal. Um, so whether or not whether or not Zoom conversations are the new normal, I I, I was really I'm I'm really delighted uh, with 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 what I was with what I was able to learn today. As I say, it's been it's been sort of a an empty wasteland for me <laughs> intellectually uh, for the past. Uh, two months, and it's really a pleasure to talk with uh, Assistant Professor Chris Florio at Hollins University in the Department of History, and Associate Professor Dion Poehler uh, at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. Thanks very much, guys, for your time.